felt the Lord say and what I felt in the Lord and, and as we gather here this morning. Um, it's just his tenderness to us as his people and his love for us. So in whatever I have here prepared, I, I just... So I'm on the blue one. So in whatever I, whatever I, of our loving Father who, who looks upon us as his children and just delights in us. Um, I don't even know really. Anyway, okay. So the, what we're talking about, uh, we're in this relevant series. And uh, I've been really enjoying, I've been, I, I feel it, it's been such a, a special time for us as a congregation each week having these uh, discussions and the opportunity then to respond uh, Andy set us off on, on this whole question about refugees, uh, this world movement of people. Um, Peter Harris talked to us about creation care. Uh, uh, David spoke last week on loneliness and God's plan to put us into families. Uh, and this week, uh, I want to talk to you on the, the topic of addiction. And I want to start off by, I'm going to put out very early on a a definition, because I want to make sure that we just quickly just move away any misunderstanding or confusion that might lead us into thinking that this is, well, this is a topic for the, that would be kind of concerns other people, not me, um, when actually I think this is very much something that is relevant uh, to all of us, and not just those that are, we may think of in the downtown east side. So what is addiction? Well, one, one definition said that it's a condition in which a person engages in the use of a substance or in a behavior for which the rewarding effects provide a compelling incentive to repeatedly pursue the behavior despite the detrimental consequences. So essentially, it's something that we use, it's something that we do as a behavior that we just keep going back to um, because it brings to us some kind of reward or relief. And because of that, we keep going back to it again and again and again, even though the effects of that are ultimately destroying us. Now, there are, we, we often think of terms of addiction, and we'll go straight to drugs and alcohol, but there are many forms, and there are those that are more or less socially acceptable. But um, addiction pays no heed to socioeconomic barriers. Uh, it includes things like TV, pornography, sex, gaming, extreme sports, gambling, even work. Now... I know from what I've read that not all behavioral addictions meet the classic definition of physical addiction, but they do share many of the psychological and social hallmarks. I don't count myself as an expert on the subject of addiction. I've ex my experience of working with people directly who have been struggling with the, the effects of addiction came um, many years ago when I was working in Brazil on the streets with children who had left their homes, left horrendous circumstances, and were now living, choosing to live uh, alone on the streets or in gangs, uh, and they would use drugs. And uh, I remember one particular boy who I used to see in the evenings. I went out onto the streets in the morning and in the evenings to meet with them. And one lad who I used to see in the evenings always, and he was just funny and sharp, quick-witted, full of confidence and bravado, and strutted down the street. And I, and I would see him, and he would come and jump on my back and and wrestle me to the ground, and, but, it, but, I, but I knew this kid. 
And then he kind of disappeared for a few weeks, and I didn't see him actually for several months. And then it was months later when I saw this emaciated, limping figure walking towards me. And as he spoke to me, he couldn't look at me, and he stuttered and could barely string a sentence together. And what I saw were the consequences of a life destroyed uh, through the use and abuse of drugs. Very clear in such a short period of time. But in this time of ministry, other than those stories, there were stories of transformation and healing, of children that, we, that, that the Lord rescued from the streets. Uh, our program was one that we took them from the streets into a home where they would be loved and welcomed and cared for and nurtured. Uh, and in that place, many of them stopped using. Many of them actually came to faith uh, in Jesus. Uh, many of them were restored uh, in relationship also even to their families. And it's there that I think I saw the importance of connection uh, more than anything else uh, for overcoming uh, addiction. It's not a simple transaction. I know that much that if we come to Jesus that all our problems are going to be solved. And it's something that we will work with. And with Jesus, he works with us and he works in us uh, to help us overcome. But I know that for many, they have come to find that Jesus brings hope and the way for healing and wholeness for all of us. What's so, I think, interesting about this, and even how we follow on from David's uh, excellent talk last week on loneliness, is when we look at social trends uh, across North America, across Europe, you can see that since the 1950s, that we're actually getting lonelier that the number of close friends that we have is diminishing. And at the same time, we're living in bigger homes, so we have more floor space, but fewer friends. We're choosing floor space over friends, and we're choosing um, stuff over connection. And yet, as humans, we are made for relationship. We have an innate uh, need to bond and to connect. We're made in the image of God. We are relational beings. And we know that through the broken relationship with God and with one another, we then go to try to fill that need with any other thing to distract us uh, and to ease the pain. We use it to, get, to escape, to avoid being present in the life that we're living. And we use things like TV and drugs and alcohol and porn and food and whatever else to help us do that. It's interesting, too, that we live in what is the most connected time ever through the Internet, through social media, through uh, intricate transport networks. But we have never been so lonely as a people. We know that. It's not in our moments of crisis. It's not in those moments that we seek our Facebook friends or our Twitter followers uh, to help us but we look for our close friends. What I've read and looked at over this last few weeks is, um, has been uh, some, some stuff that's been written by a guy called Johan Hari um, and uh, put together a really interesting little video. Uh, he, there's, a, there's a talk that he gives on a TED Talk as well, which I can post later on to the, to the Granville site. But the, under, the traditional understanding uh, of addiction was largely based on a simple science, simple science experiment of the early 20th century. Take a rat, 
put him in a cage, and put two bottles of water, one laced with heroin or cocaine, and the other pure water. And so they would observe the rat, and over time, the rat would keep returning again and again and again to the drug-laced water until eventually it died. And so our understanding has been traditionally that addiction is this craving, is this chemical hook that we drive, that drives us back again and again. Uh, and so if we're going to overcome addiction, what we need to do is overcome these chemical hooks. But in the 1970s, there's a Vancouver-based um, psychologist called Professor Bruce Alexander, and he, he wanted to run this test differently because he said, well, hang on a minute, when we did that test, that rat was in a cage on its own. It had nothing else to do. So what if we change the environment? Would that change the outcome of this experiment? And so he designed Rat Park. <laughs> and it was, and it was, it was like rat heaven. Uh, this is how they described it, as, as rat heaven. They had, there were little balls they could play with. There were other rats. They could, they could get close. Um, you know, they, and they had, there were still the two bottles of water. One was pure water, and one was the heroin, cocaine-laced uh, water. But what they found was, despite when in this environment, that hardly any of the rats went to the drug-laced water. And in fact, at the end of the experiment, none of the rats had died. And so the conclusion or the question that it raises is, well, what if addiction is less about the chemical hooks and more about the cages that we live in? And there's this, and I want us to think along these lines of, is it possible then that the antidote or the opposite even to addiction is not sobriety or abstinence, um, but it's connection? You think, well, I'm not a rat, and I don't live in Rack Park, so, I mean, how does, it, how does that work for us? Well, there was a human experiment that was also conducted around the 70s, which was the Vietnam War. And during the Vietnam War, the, the stats were that about 20% of the servicemen in the, Vietnam, in the Vietnamese War were uh, using heroin. And at that time, there was a real concern for people back uh, in the United States. When these guys come home, how are we going we're gonna to have all of these addicted servicemen walking our streets. What are we going to do? How is, how is this going to work out? And yet, when they returned, 95% of them stopped using. They didn't go into rehab. They just stopped using. And their conclusion, or their findings, were when these guys came back, came out of the horror of the jungle of the war in which the escape you can understand the, the reason for their need to escape. When they came back, they reconnected with their family, their friends, their communities, their environment, a vibrant, connected, bonded environment. They no longer felt the need to use. So Professor Alexander's theory suggests that the pathway out of addiction is through establishing healthy bonds. When we're happy and healthy, we bond with people, but when we can't, either through trauma or isolation or when we've just been beaten down by life, then we will seek to bond with something else because we need to escape and we need some relief from the pain. But what if the opposite to addiction is, is not sobriety or abstinence, but what if it is connection? See, I know... We know that the, the, the most important relationship, the most important connection that we can have is 
our relationship with God the Father that is made possible through the work of Jesus on the cross. And we know that until we're restored in that relationship, that, that we, can't, we will never feel fully satisfied. And we will always crave something to fill the gap that we're made for, that relationship with God. And so we crave things, we hunger for things, and yet Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never go thirsty. So how is this when we think of these issues of addiction and these questions of how it affects us, all of us, and our tendencies and our inclinations, and how we seek to, to comfort ourselves, to bring comfort and ease pain? How is this relevant to us as we sit here this morning? What's, what is our response? What, what is Jesus' response? And, and I want to just look at this from, from two places. One, first of all, for those of us, for many of us, for whom the struggle is very real, even today. You know, maybe we're aware of our own tendency and our need. Or even we've become aware. And I, and I also want to address for those of us who are walking with someone who we know and we love who is also struggling with addiction of one form or another. So first of all, for those of us who, who recognize the tendency in ourselves, what does that feel like? Where, where do we find ourselves? Quite often in a place of guilt and of shame, the fear of being discovered and found out that we would put up masks and we would project another image And because we don't want to be found out, what do we do? We withdraw even further and we isolate ourselves and we keep it our secret. And we hope that nobody sees and we pray that nobody notices. And so when we come to verse 13 of Hebrews 4, we read, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We know that we can't hide. Nothing is hidden. We are completely exposed before the all-seeing eye of God. And in, and in that, the understanding, the meaning of that word where we're laid bare is that we are, we're helpless. We're helpless before the one to whom we must give an account. God sees us. And yet, we can approach his throne of grace in confidence because through Jesus, he understands our weakness. He empathizes with our weakness. And this, this word empathy, I mean, it's, it's one thing for somebody to share our feelings, to have compassion. But we have a great high priest who, have, who actively helps those who are helpless. And his sympathy is not simply as one from without, looking upon us from afar. But Jesus enters into our suffering, and he makes it his own. We know that throughout Scripture in Romans 5, Paul says, God demonstrates his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The tenderness of God's heart, the love of the Father for us, for his children, for his people, the more desperate our condition before the all-seeing eye of God, the more wonderful his provision for our needs. 
And it's God's provision through Jesus that enables us to approach the throne of grace with confidence. Trusting not in our own righteousness, but in the work of Jesus on the cross. So what about those, those, those of us who are suffering and struggle with areas of addiction? What about those of us who are walking with others who find themselves in that place? Maybe it's a child. Maybe a family member, a colleague, a neighbor, a, a school friend. You know, some people would say it's, it's hard. It's a hard path to walk. Because we experience and feel deceit, deceived, betrayed, confused, hurt. Why? Why can't you just stop? Why can't this just end? And often the response is that we withdraw, right? And then we pull away. And, and there are programs on TV that we often see, you know, those intervention-type programs, and you see the family, they gather everybody around, and, and they out of love. You know, they're saying this, we want, you know, we want, you've got to stop, you know, and all of this, you're going to lose. And, and actually, it's withdrawal. More disconnection, more isolation. There's a conditionality at times of our love and of our support. It's, it's natural, it's hard, it hurts. And yet, what's our response when we come to this? We see God's unconditional love. If you think of the story of the, the lost son in Luke 15, and the father who looked out, who constantly went out to look for his son that was lost. And it says in verse 20, while he was still a long way off, the father looked. He could see his son who was still a long way off. He saw him. The father was filled with compassion. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him. And he kissed him. That's messy. This, this topic, this, this issue, this life is messy. The kids that I met with and spent time with on the streets was messy. Like you can't, you can't love up close without getting dirty. They, they, as they would come up and I, I, they'd come up and they'd hug me, oh, chill, uncle. And I'd give them a hug and I knew they, you know, their hands and their nails were filthy. I could see the lice in their head. I could smell them before they even got closer. It's messy. And love is, is messy, right? To love unconditionally is, is messy. We can't really do it without getting dirt on ourselves. One leader, uh, one church leader said that as he taught, as he instructed all of his church leaders and pastors, he would say, shepherds, smell of their sheep. You got to get close. So if we're struggling this morning, I think the Lord would bring us, from the tenderness of his heart, the encouragement to all of us not to lose hope. But we can trust in God who has not lost sight. No matter how far off we may feel or our friends may seem, they have not become lost to the Lord we can be confident and not lose hope. We can trust in him and approach his throne with confidence. This is a challenge to persistent, confident prayer. The sustenance of a, of a living relationship with God through Jesus. Through Jesus, we have immediate access to the Father. And freedom to draw near continually. Try this. Before you post on Facebook, 
please pray for my friend who's in this. Pray for your friend. Like we, we, we can draw immediately close. We, we draw near to God through Jesus. And when we do draw near, we receive mercy, the assurance that all of our transgressions, all of our sins have been dealt with, and with grace and inner strengthening to endure. We have both mercy and grace through Jesus Christ. And it says that we receive this in our time of need. This is the God who provides for us in our time of need. Psalm 9 says, The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. God is the one who gives help, and his timing is perfect. And we know that prayer is not the last act, but it's where we begin. But beyond prayer and confidence, we're also called to act. And most often we see uh, an individual response, don't we, to, and this has been one of the, one of the studies, that in, in looking at addiction, most often it's an individualized a response, treatment, rehab, counseling, medication. But, but what if our call is to address the wider, the broader societal needs? You see, that we know that there is no greater need than to be restored in our relationship with God through Jesus, and that through him we are restored in our relationships with others. That's why Alpha is such an important and such a wonderful opportunity. But to follow with Jesus is also to join with him in the extension of his kingdom and, and to seek the shalom of our city. If the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, not sobriety or abstinence, but, but it's connection, how then might we as a church respond? I was, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was in um, Tampa with a bunch of leaders uh, who is like a multipliers, multipliers learning community. So there's a bunch of leaders, about 20 of us, and we get together about three times over the year, and we're looking at church trends and needs and opportunities and what it means to see the kingdom of God uh, and the church uh, grow uh, exponentially, the multiplication uh, of churches and the saturation of, uh, of our communities with the gospel. And uh, we were hosted by the Tampa Underground Movement. And uh, the, the Tampa Underground Movement is a network of some 200 micro-churches, or we might, we might define them more as sort of missional communities, uh, under the leadership of a guy called Brian Saunders and his team. And you can look this up later on if you want to know more about it. It's a great, a great movement. But one of the things that struck me most profoundly in the time that I was there, on the, on the last morning, Brian himself stood up and he, he shared a devotional in the morning for those of us who were there. And, uh, and he shared his own story. And he shared it uh, from his own struggle uh, as a dad and as a, uh, of, about his, his daughter's uh, struggle with addiction. And in fact, as we were meeting, she was in rehab again. Uh, and, and as he spoke, he spoke with, there was pain, um, there was an understanding of, well, what he shared was his own sense of weakness, his own sense of helplessness, of frustration, of fear, powerlessness, just a longing of the Father to always be, you know, how can I be? I can't keep watch over all, all the time. I can't do this uh, for her. And he said, but, you know, this, 
This is the motivation for our work. All of this, these 200-something church, churches, this movement of God, uh, the motivation is, is my daughter, he says. That we could mobilize God's people everywhere all of the time so that there is no street, no bar, no strip joint, no sidewalk, no classroom, no schoolyard, coffee shop, or office where God's people are not present, seeing, and loving, and caring. He wants to be sure that wherever his daughter is, that somebody is going to be there to pick her up. And wouldn't you feel the same? So when we as a church talk about a vision to be spiritually vibrant and transformed and extending the kingdom, we We've come to understand that in terms of what God is doing, looking at our history and where we think the Lord is leading us going forward is actually the, the Lord is taking us from this kind of healthy little community here to see a work that multiplies this ministry exponentially, that the Lord would multiply this into a movement, not just here, but across our city and a nation and around the world. But I want us to understand that this is more than just a slogan or a catchphrase that is a nice thing to be able to put across the top of our letterhead? Do we see the vitality of the mission and of the call that the Lord has laid upon us as his church? You see, that's why it's important that we, we want to see people coming to faith in Jesus. We want to see people growing in faith, being discipled and making disciples, that we are, we're actually loving our neighbors, that we're getting to know the people that we live alongside, that we come together as a group, as community groups, that we create places of safety uh, and wholeness and healing and growth and encouragement and affirmation, that we, that we take time to, to get together, to put things on, that we can share our faith, that we're bold in the proclamation of the gospel, to tell people this is the hope in which we live. Do you see the importance and the vitality of this beyond something nice that we can aim for, but this is mission critical. As I think about God's heart this morning for us, and I think about as he looks out on this congregation and he sees and he knows every single one of us, he meets us with a tenderness and a love, but beyond these walls are many more that he's calling to himself, and his heart is that none would be lost. Amen.